Welcome to Participate. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Margaret Honey about her work at New York Hall of Science, how they're continuing to think about their impact during the COVID-19 pandemic, and her thoughts on community and collaboration. Let's get started. So, Julie. Yes. Episode one. So excited. I can't believe I'm, we're finally launching it. Yay. We're making a podcast. We're doing a thing. We are doing a thing together, and it's going to be great. I hope so. Yeah. And so what are we going to be doing, Mike? So we have so many great partners. That's true. It's amazing. Folks that are doing just unbelievable work. Like every time I hear about one of them and what they're doing, I go, whoa, mm -hmm. that's amazing. And I didn't actually realize that it was happening. They're doing exceptional things. And especially when you sort of even pull back and you see them all as a group, because I know here at Participate, like we're really into this idea of networked communities of practice. And That's it's right. really exciting right now to see that starting and really bubbling up, like, you know, just around even the computational thinking, like that's why I'm so excited that we're starting with Margaret first, but we have all of these partners that are doing great work and they can all elevate each other. And that's what's really great to see. Tons. Uh, so there's tons of folks. This is going to be a monthly podcast. So we'll always have someone to talk about because there's so much going on. Uh, I don't know if either of us could handle turning this into a bi-weekly podcast. No, I think that might kill you. Mike. It, right. But it, there's so much to talk about that it would be exciting. So let's talk about Dr. Margaret Honey and the New York Hall of Science. You know Margaret very well. So this is kind of this wonderful amazing thing that has happened in, in my life in that my first boss, Dr. Margaret Honey, who um, I worked with at the Center for Children and Technology uh, at Education Development Center, um, she took over the New York Hall of Science around the same time that I moved to North Carolina. And I started working at Participate essentially uh, some years later. And we've always been sort of talking about how to partner. And then this opportunity came up because they've been making all these amazing games. And New York Hall of Science is really unique in that way. They have the physical campus. They bring people there. It's a community museum, a community science museum. So they're really dedicated to the community in Queens. But they also make games. Um, and they also work with educators. And they've been thinking about how to move beyond kind of these amazing workshops that they do. They do a lot of work at the museum. Um, but especially now, we sort of talk talked about the idea of an online community practice a couple of years ago and then got this grant from the uh, Department of Education. So this has been a great project for us. So I'm so excited that she's our first guest. And she takes some pretty cool dives into some of her history and, and stories and reminiscing with you a little bit, which is fun. Yeah. And you can tell that she's a real thoughtful person about the work that she does and how they do it at the New York Hall of Science. I've never heard that story about Bruce Gantz. I know that teacher, and I know that she was in the first part of her career was an ed educator uh, researcher there in his classroom. But it is amazing as you step back when you've had kind of a career like Margaret's, like what those moments are that really shaped how you think about teaching and learning and what you want to see children do and how you want to support children. So that was so great to hear. And also, I kind of tell some of this stuff to my own children, which is like, you never know. Like, she didn't know she wanted to do this work. She just needed a job. So sometimes it just is luck. <laughs> and you find your passions sometimes when you least expect it. And that was cool to hear that story. It's just like me sitting in front of a screen talking to Dr. Julie Keene. How about that? 
Exactly. Who knew we'd get here? Who Mike? knew? Uh, so yes. you're going to hear that conversation when we come back uh, with Dr. Margaret Honey from the New York Hall of Science. So stay with us. NASA is a really welcoming place. It has its doors open to everybody. And there's always something new to learn. This is one of the best cultural experiences in Corona. So it's a wonderful hands-on experience, learning about things that they don't see in their regular day. And, you know, the parents also get to learn. NYSAI is one of the leaders of the country. You know, one of the things that stands out in my mind is just how engaged they are both in practice and sort of leading, you know, what a new museum could look like. They're also really deeply engaged in the research behind it and evidence-based practice. You don't see that very often in informal learning where you see research and practice come together like this. Welcome back. We're so happy to have Dr. Margaret Honey. And she has joined the New York Hall of Science as president and CEO in November of 2008. And under her leadership, NYSI has adopted Design Make Play as its signature strategy to promote STEM engagement and learning. Her passion for STEM learning has always focused on its core strategies of open-ended exploration, imaginative learning, and personal relevance. As a senior scientist in the field of ed tech, Dr. Honey has also supported national educational research and policy initiatives. She's worked with Mathematica Policy Research, the American Institutes for Research, and the Institute for Ed Sciences to design a study on the effectiveness of education technology. And she did that for the U.S. Department of Education. And now, personally, I had the fortunate ability to work with Margaret for 15 years in the beginning of, of my career, and that was... Um, very grateful for that time and also to be partnering with you now again and for our longtime friendship. So welcome to the show and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Julie. It's, it's great to be here. In the introduction, we touched on your expertise and your experience. Can you tell us a little about your background in education and how you see your role at NYSI? I will be happy to. So I'm one of those people who early in my career got fortunate. When I was in graduate school, I landed a job at uh, what's now called Sesame Workshop, children's television workshop, and had the opportunity to get involved very, very early in the interactive media space. It was when kind of computers, home computers were first coming on the market. This was the early 80s. And that work got me very interested in uh, using kind of these interactive multimedia tools as platforms for a different kind of learning, a kind of learning that could be much more engaged, much more um, sort of learner-centric, um, much more about discovery, much less about didacticism, all those kinds of things. And after the workshop, um, I had the good fortune of joining Bank Street College of Education. That's where I met Julie. We both worked at the Center for Children and Technology. And again, um, in my early time at Bank Street, I was lucky to work on an amazing children's media project production called The Voyage of the Mimi. Um, Mimi was a boat and um, uh, the show, it was a television series. It was print materials that were designed for classroom use. So the, the television show was repackaged. VHS tapes went into classrooms along with the curriculum. And then we also designed educational software. And a lot of my role or the role I played on that project uh, was about doing research, making sure that 
what we were creating was compelling to, to students and teachers, um, that they found it really engaging, that they understood the concepts that we were trying to get across. And, you know, I think um, I was very fortunate to have an experience that brought together um, really important aspects of teaching and learning in kind of a single opportunity. And that experience centered around um, being invited to come test materials, show them to students. I was showing, which which I would do every week, a rough cut um, of one of our videos. Uh, at the end of this episode, they uncover this 5,000 ton slab of stone, an ancient Maya stella, and they realized it contained the clue to this lost city, Site U for unknown. So the, the challenge in the television series was in that moment, how do you get it off the floor of the ocean? And what they ended up doing in the episode was um, strapping giant ropes onto the Stella and then tying um, garbage bags onto the ends of the ropes and inflating those garbage bags with air from their diving tanks. And so at the end of the video, you see this, this monument rising to the surface of the ocean. It's very dramatic and very exciting. And the kids were riveted, absolutely riveted. Yeah, and, um, yeah, you know, as we get older, it's, it's the things you remember mm -hmm. and you remember like with poignancy that, you know, have real kind of stickiness and relevance. And there were so many important lessons tied up in both in that moment, but also in the context of this broader initiative that we were working on at, at Bank Street. And that had to do with, you know, really quality, thoughtful materials that didn't tell them how to think, but gave them the space and opportunities to devise solutions and strategies, problem-solving approaches that they could explore and invent, and invent without being told what to do. Um, the complete opposite of scripted curricula. There was this amazing school that so valued um, the knowledge and wisdom that children brought with them into the classroom. And this extraordinary talented teacher, Bruce Cairns, who I'm incredible. proud to say is still a friend to this very day. He was visiting us not too long before we had to shut down because of COVID-19 at the Hall of Science. And um, I, it was really Bruce that is the person who is responsible for my wanting to spend my entire career in the education space. And it's really Sam Gibbon, who is the executive producer of the Mimi, who, you know, I credit with helping me think hard and deeply and well about what is it that makes learning irresistible. Sam always used to say, we have to make something that's so compelling to kids that no teacher will, will want to turn it down as something she uses in her classroom. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thinking, those kinds mm -hmm. of early opportunities that I've had have followed me through my career. But I feel like what's amazing about the New York Hall of Science is that it's been the place where we really get to put them into practice and experiment and iterate and um, 
you know, explore and invent together. And that's a, that's a real luxury in this world. That's such a great story. I was thinking about, you know, you saying that you, you started in education at kind of the dawn of the personal computer and consoles, game consoles were also becoming a thing around that time as well. And so people, the general public was becoming quite a bit more interested in STEM and engineering and technology and digital technology. What brought you to an interest in digital technology and STEM activities? Well, you know, in all honesty, I, I was in grad school. I had no money and I really needed a job. <laughs> and I was standing in the registration line and uh, Leona Schauble, now Dr. Leona Schauble of Vanderbilt University, mm-hmm. um, was ahead of me in line and, and in the same program I was in. And we started talking and I sort of looked at her, I'm sure, with a certain amount of desperation and said, hey, I need a job. You have any ideas? And she said, well, actually, she was working at the workshop and uh, she said, we're starting this new division. It's going to be focused on interactive media and computers and come on down and interview. And I did. But to your question, I think what intrigued me from the outset, I, I was actually really interested in sort of psychology and human development more so than I was initially in the early part of my career with teaching and learning and education specifically. And what I saw in the interactive media was a space that made room for imagination. And it was actually some of the early work that we did at the workshop. Um, We were developing a whole line of different kinds of software products. And I was tasked with um, putting together a bunch of different kinds of software programs that clustered into different categories, art and design tools, um, shoot 'em up games, fantasy role-playing games, mystery adventure games. And we took them off to a camp, in, a computer camp in Eastern Connecticut and used the young people who were at the camp as kind of our guides and informants and sort of sources of inspiration. And that work... Um, I mean, I was super interested in the fantasy role-playing genre of game. And there there was a game at the time called Wizardry, best-selling game, modeled on Dungeons and & Dragons. And um, what was intriguing about it back in the day is that um, the worlds weren't painted for you. They weren't graphically rendered. The, like, you traveled through this environment in a really sketchy kind of 3D maze, and little text boxes would flash up on the screen and tell you what, what was happening. You just encountered a, you know, some big scary monster or whatever. And it, it struck me that these new tools were interesting places to look at questions of imagination and projection and um, a whole range of kind of psychological phenomena that I was interested in. And I went on to do my own dissertation in that area. But when when I moved to Bank Street um, and teaching and learning and education more broadly were and are the wonderful currency of that institution, um, I realized that this, you know, these new media, these new technologies, new tools could play an equally powerful role in learning opportunities for young people. 
And so it was, you know, it was this funny mix of desperation and kind of core interests that I think got me interested originally. But I give Bank Street all the credit in the world for being the thoughtful, intentional institution it is and helping me to understand that when, you know, teaching and learning are done well, there's probably nothing more powerful in a young person's life than those kinds of experiences. Okay. I do love the fact that I actually didn't know that's how you started at um, Sesame because when I started at CCT at the Center for Children's Technology, that was also because I was looking for a job and mainly because I couldn't stand waiting tables anymore. I was becoming a total misanthrope. And so ended up at your doorstep. Actually, that was when there was a fire, if you remember. There was smoke sort of pouring out um, when I met most of the team at CCT that day. Um, and uh, so I had no idea around education technology or anything. And I think it was really, um, it was you and Jan uh, Hawkins, who's the director at the time, what was so interesting about the center at the time and Bank Street was really, really being interested in the context in which these technologies play out. And that really connected with um, sort of the messiness that I really loved about walking into schools um, and that the group that was together there that we are all still working with in some capacity just had this appetite for that mess, did not want to sort of clear it away, really wanted to understand how kids and educators really sort of dealt with these technologies and what some of the barriers and challenges were. And so I really developed that passion kind of on the educator side of really understanding, of trying to think about how to support teachers in providing those spaces for kids, not ignoring the role of the teacher in providing those spaces for kids, have them have a role in that, and also to let them play themselves. My question is sort of shifting gears to sort of our, our present uh, moment. What's happening with the museum now, now that you had to sort of close the campus physically, What's going on? Well, um, it's of course it's a it's a tough time for the country and for the world. And um, New York is, you know, very much at the epicenter of this intense period of time we're living through. And Corona and Elmhurst are two of our immediate communities. That part of what people call Western Queens has been really, really, really badly hit. By the virus. We learned from Madeline Chan, the superintendent of District 24, that within one of one of the schools in Corona, um, 161 children have lost at least one parent. Um, So just, you know, and I remember Madeline on that call saying, you know, my teachers are not teaching. They're really taking care of families and children. And um, a couple week, weekends ago, they, they reached out to Andres from one of the schools, and we were able to host a food drive at the Hall of Science, um, oh, which amazing. is great. So, you know, one of the things that, that people have talked about is the need for the community to heal. And, of course, there are many different strategies and approaches, um, but for the cultural organizations and, and for our science center, you know, I think one of the ways into that is we, we think about, well, when it's safe, and we are sitting in this big, beautiful park, Flushing Meadow Corona Park, when it's safe, can we bring families together um, for some, you know, fun, playful, joyful, creative events that are happening in the park? So my colleagues, who <laughs> who are the best, um, they're so creative and so thoughtful. One of their ideas was we we built a bunch of years ago a giant catapult machine. It's about, I don't know, 
14 feet tall. It's really big. And we've used it in the past for like pumpkin chunking. Mm -hmm. But one of their ideas was, wow, you know, maybe what we could do is have kids and families like building viruses and then put them in the catapult and (laughs) shoot them them off, right? Like how (laughs) cathartic, how cool, right? And also how playful and how kind of, um, you know, it's it's sort of back to the Mimi here. It's a little bit of everything, right? It's it's sort of good, joyful, delightful, and slightly pissed off learning at its best, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're really locked down at the moment. So what we are doing more broadly in our work and what we are doing with um, families and schools in our local community is all happening virtually at the moment. And you know, again, our teams are are wonderful. So our maker our maker team and our community team have come together, and they've been doing a whole series of DIY videos that they um, they run real time using Facebook with families, and they're all focused on kind of DIY projects. Um, you know, remaking. They did a like take your old T-shirts or clothing and remake them into you know purses or bags that you can use to carry stuff. Um, they had kids collecting all sorts of different kinds of cardboard and other objects in their homes and then, you know, making these totally playful ballrooms and Mm -hmm. everything about our current situation is, I think for all of us, it's so stressful. It's so demanding. It's so hard. And I think, you know, what we're hearing from our families and, and what we experience when we when we do these events with them is finding those moments of joy and happiness where mm-hmm. you're you're connecting around something that you're doing together, where you're actively making and creating, um, is is actually a really important process. Not just kind of treading water in this crisis, but for finding pockets of resilience, yeah. sort of energy that can be used to carry you through. So we have to keep all parts of the human spirit alive, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about the power of community and collaboration, which is what Participate is kind of all about, and what you're doing to build sustainable learning pathways and partnerships. In your experience with various education organizations, what has made successful programs and partnerships work? That's a great question. And and I do think it goes back to the power of bringing people together, of collaborating, of drawing on education, drawing on the wisdom of practitioners. I think, you know, what what makes me excited about the work that we're doing with Participate, it's not just about working with Julie and other other former colleagues, um, as well as amazing new people who we've gotten to know through the organization. But it's um, again, it's about important through lines. And I think what Participate tries to do and does really well is use tools and technologies to bring people together so that you can draw on the collective wisdom of the field, because that's how we advance and move things forward, um, really fundamentally in education. And I think that opportunities for practitioner knowledge and expertise to be elevated, to be valued, um, to be credited is an incredibly important part 
of the education enterprise that, you know, is too often um, in some corners drowned out in favor of results from experimental studies, um, which, you know, can be important, but that work only gets you so far. It's, it's um, you know, it's strategies around practices that have to do with implementation. It's the sharing of wisdom of what do you see in a piece of student work and where do you identify the learning taking place. It's that kind of knowledge building that can happen really effectively and well in communities of practice. You know, that is a, a core and fundamental and foundational goal of the work that we're doing together. Yeah. I mean, what's really fun to watch with the PAC, we've continued to be able to work with educators. And that was a question when schools closed and especially um, they're all throughout Queens and they are some in in the district that's around the museum, but also all throughout Brooklyn. And so it's been great to see them just kind of continue to want to play and engage and think about ways to kind of reach their kids. And the other thing that's been really fun is introducing your team to this other group called The Wonderment, where kids can create playlists and share their work virtually. So we're also sort of experimenting with that, which is how do you sort of create a virtual ecosystem to the extent that even in the fall, kids are going to be coming back probably to a staggered um, school schedule. So in terms of seat time, I think things are going to be redesigned. And uh, that's where I get really hopeful is like, how can we really do some imaginative um, things? So last question, because this was something I was talking to Katie Culp, our dear friend, who's your chief learning officer at the Hall of Science, is you are so unique in terms of having an R&D group, research and development, um, working with that team. You have education services that have been a really powerfully talented team of folks that work with with educators. Um, In addition to the explainers that you have that work in the museum itself and the exhibits. So I'm just curious just about leading a museum that's really unique in all of the parts that you've brought there. So I think, um, you know, what sits at the center of everything we do is this commitment to this kind of core philosophy, or Katie likes to call it our our aspirational pedagogy, design, make, play. And what that's about, going way back in my life to the early days of working on the Mimi, it's about an approach to designing learning experiences that are open-ended enough and designed effectively enough that, that every learner can find a foothold. So every learner can have an early experience of success that they can build on. Um, it's about you know, tapping into sort of their ideas and their interests. And it's really about learning, not in a didactic way, but through exploration and discovery. It's not the only way to learn. And we know that sometimes you do need to sit down and memorize things. But we know that when it comes to sort of learner insight and deeper understanding of concepts and content, that discovery and exploration and the process of um, often in the context of working with a skilled facilitator or educator or, in our case, at the museum, an explainer on the floor of the museum. It's a process of building up your understanding over time. But that kind of learning has real genuine stickiness. It stays with you. It, it, it changes how you think about something. And, you know, when I joined the Hall of Science, you know, there was R&D work going on in the museum. But I think what I brought with me, just given my background, was 
uh, perspective on the ways in which we could strengthen and amplify and really build out that work. So we yeah. began to kind of talk and imagine the museum as a as a learning laboratory, as a place for um, really important innovation and experimentation to happen in the education space with the degrees of freedom that come from working in a environment that that isn't sort of uh, operating under the same constraints that schools operate under. So, you know, we don't have to test kids. We don't have to make sure we're getting them over the annual assessment and all of that. So we have the luxury of really being able to experiment with, um, you know, what makes learning both irresistible and highly impactful for young people. And, um, you know, under under Katie's guidance, we're really putting a stake in the ground around the importance of kind of self-efficacy as a measure um, for what we want our programs to accomplish, meaning like that sense um, that is so important in a learner's or a young person's trajectory of, I can do this. I can be good at this. I actually, I can actually see myself pursuing X. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we... We know that's an important conceit, but I think we have a unique opportunity in our environment to really sort of demonstrate the ways in which we we make that happen, both in relation to experiences that are on the floor of the museum in the form of, of exhibits, as well as a whole kind of broad range of programmatic experiences. Because we're we're so committed to ensuring that we, we, we use design principles that really kind of open up the box of learning for young people so that they can find a foothold. What, what Seymour Papert um, used to call low barrier to entry, high ceiling of complexity. You can, find, you can find your foothold and then, you know, as you gain experience and expertise or as you work with others, you can stretch that learning um, in all sorts of exciting ways. Dr. Margaret Honey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike and Julie. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was so great, Margaret. Thank you so much for all your time and your thoughts and our partnership. It's really thrilling for us. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is the great Mike Washburn. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at, at participate. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found there at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time. <laughs>